like to encourage you, if you have your Bibles, to join me in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. There's a universal language that I believe everyone hates. It is the language of judgmentalism. How many of you love to be judged? Love it. Anyone? You realize that when you enter into a church setting like this, our reputation precedes us. And I don't mean us, Graceway. I just mean the church culture, particularly that middle word on the sign out there, Baptist, really throws people for a loop. And what they think when they walk in is everybody's going to be looking at me and they are going to be judging me. And we are. You should feel very uncomfortable. You're doing the same thing to me right now. The fact is, we are all exercising judgment on one another. We are all discerning people to one degree or another, and we are constantly assessing the situation. That's why we try to put on our best face. That's why we alter or modify our external behavior concerning the setting that we find ourselves in. Well, this morning, I want to read a segment of verses that we will find a primary motivation in. And in them, we are going to find real judgment that is inescapable. As the Apostle Paul is writing his second letter to the believers at Corinth, he is continuing to respond to some of the questions that they have. He is writing to them here in chapter 5, and he begins in verse 8, and we're familiar with the language of this verse, but perhaps not so much the language beyond it. He says this in verse 8, we are confident, and that's a good way to start. We are sure of this. This is something that is non-negotiable, not up for debate. We're not really questioning this. We are confident, I say, and willing rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. He is speaking in Bible terms of death. To be absent from this mortal body is to be, for the believer, in the presence of the Lord. And that's why he says, I'm certain of this, and in fact, I would rather be with Christ, for that is far better. That's what he tells us in another letter. It's far better to be with Christ. And then he says something in verse 9 that is important. Based on this... Wherefore, we labor that, whether present or absent, we may be accepted of Him, Jesus Christ. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. That's language that we understand. We are going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ and our works will be judged whether they are good or bad. If you want motivation for the Christian life, look no further than these verses. We could summarize it in this way. We all have to stand stripped of all disguises, no mask on, no air of pretense, no modification of external behavior before the Messiah who is the perfect judge. And each of us will then receive the recompense for the deeds that we have done in this body, which is currently our instrument to do the works of God or to yield as instruments of unrighteousness to reference the book of Romans. That is a lofty thought. That is a sobering reality. 
In fact, in response to the question, what is the greatest thought that has ever entered your mind? Daniel Webster said this, the greatest thought that has ever entered my mind is that one day I will have to stand before a holy God and give account of my life. That's sobering. That is motivating. That is fear-inducing. That is a reverential reality that we will stand before God. Another author said, many Christians, I think that would include us, operate from the erroneous idea that the only thing that really matters about heaven is if you get to go there or not. In reality, he said, some will go to heaven empty-handed, while others will enter into eternity with reward that is accumulated from their days on earth. I think... One of the reasons that we remain unmotivated in our spiritual journey is because we remain uneducated about the judgment seat of Christ. And nobody's really comfortable with this thought, and I understand what this elicits from us, but we have to understand it from the Bible because this is not the only place it's taught. The Apostle Paul was writing to the believers at Rome, and they were having a little bit of criticism and judgmentalism going on within the church. And he says this to them in Romans chapter 14, beginning in verse 10. Why dost thou judge thy brother? Or why dost thou set it not thy brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, as I live, saith the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then every one of us shall give account of himself to God. The context of 2 Corinthians 5 and Romans chapter 14 is written to believers. And there's an interesting note communicated in John chapter 5, verse 22, where we read, For the Father judgeth no man, but hath committed all judgment unto the Son. That means that Jesus Christ is the perfect judge. And if you were listening in when we read 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we came across this phrase, we must all. And then in Romans chapter 14, we read every one of us. We must all, every one of us who are believers, stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Again, Romans chapter 14 tells us that they in Rome were judging one another. They were trying to discern all spiritual things. They were trying to communicate about the motives of people's hearts. And the apostle sets them straight, in effect saying to them, think of it this way. You who are looking down on your brother or sister will one day be looking up at your sovereign judge. You who are judging each other in contempt are one day going to stand before Jesus, the righteous judge. All of us, every one of us, that's motivating That means me, and that includes you. You say, now hold on a second, Pastor. I'm confused. Because I thought when I accepted Jesus Christ as my Savior, all judgment was off. What you're telling me now is though I have accepted Christ, my behavior has to be in such a way so that I merit heaven. I'm not teaching that at all and will painstakingly drag you through the Bible to prove that to you over the course of this message. Isn't that awesome? Painstakingly drag you through the Bible to help you understand something. In Revelation, we read about the great white throne judgment. That is a separate setting from the Bema seat judgment, and we're going to get to that in just a moment. 
In Revelation chapter 20, we read the account of the great white throne judgment where those who have rejected Christ are being judged. And the Bible is very explicit in it. We read this in Revelation 20 and verse 11. And I saw a great white throne. That's John writing from which we derive the great white throne judgment. And he writes this, and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away. And there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and the death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them, and they were judged every man according to their works. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. I know this is a theological treatise, but listen to this verse in summary. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. That's the ultimate fire and brimstone preaching. If you reject Jesus Christ, the torment of hell is your eternal destination. And what we've just read in Revelation chapter 20 is an account of the great white throne judgment where all of those who have rejected Jesus Christ for all of human history will answer before God for the fact that their sins have not been covered by the shed blood of Jesus and they are cast into the lake of fire. If you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, you will not be judged in that place in that way. But the fact is, those of us who know Jesus Christ We'll stand at the Bema seat. The Greek word Bema, that's where we sound really smart, Bema seat, simply communicates to us it was a platform. That word Bema later here, specifically during the time of the Apostle Paul, comes to communicate the raised platform where a tribunal or judges would render their verdicts. In fact, Pilate, talking to Jesus, in Matthew chapter 27 and verse 19, is responding to a note that comes to him from his wife. And we read this in Matthew's account, when he, Pilate, was set down on the judgment seat. That judgment seat is that raised platform. That is the Bema seat. That is where the tribunal or the judge would render a verdict. Everybody who was reading this letter in the city of Corinth was able to conjure up an image of the Bema seat because in Acts chapter 18, the apostle Paul is judged by Gallio standing before the Bema seat, which is in Corinth. And you can see the ruins of that here. In fact, you could still go to Corinth and you could stand before the Bema, the raised platform where the judges would render a verdict where the apostle Paul himself stood and was judged by Gallio. I'm dragging you through that to stay with that imagery to help you understand what the Bible is communicating. We will stand before the raised platform where the judge, the perfect judge, will render verdict on our lives as followers of Jesus Christ. Say, now, I'm still confused. What you're saying to me is, if I sin, my sin will be judged there. No. The only people that are judged at the Bema seat are believers. Sin, let me be careful to communicate, was judged in Christ on the cross. And because we stand in Christ, who was already judged, we will never be condemned for our sins. Jesus Christ was already condemned for us. Listen to what the Bible says as Peter writes. Peter in 1 Peter 2.24 said, Who his own self, speaking of Jesus bear our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, being dead to sins, should live under righteousness by whose stripes 
we, ye, were healed, speaking of Jesus. When I stand at the Bema seat, I will not stand there in fear of rejection. I will not stand there in fear of condemnation. I will not stand there as a prosecuting attorney brings an argument against me. Though in this life, the devil, who is the accuser of the brethren, is constantly accusing before God, and we have our intercessor, Jesus Christ, who is always interceding on our behalf in front of the Father, always claiming his shed blood. Now, this is deep stuff for a Sunday morning, and you probably didn't sign up for it. You can't escape it. The Bible's relatively deep. Our sins are covered. When the apostle was writing to Rome, he says this to them in Romans 8.31. What shall we say then to these things, these accusations? If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Now he's going to ask a rhetorical question. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? That's believers. He says, it is God that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? Again, rhetorical question that he answers. It is Christ that died, yea, rather that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. Maybe the simplest way to summarize this is to go to Romans chapter 8 and verse 1 and simply read to you, there is therefore now, that's an important word, no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. This judgment that we will is not punitive action. It is not God judging our sins. Our sins as believers have already been judged in Christ. I think the most beautiful, eloquent way that it has ever been written is in Colossians chapter 2, where the Apostle Paul says, And you, being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. Now get this blotting out the handwriting of the ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. If you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, you are not condemned by your sin. You are free from the penalty of sin, and you are free from the power of sin having dominion over you. You will not be condemned. Now, I know this is so much Bible, and I should be very apologetic for communicating this much scripture to you. That's my shot at humor. That's it. That's as funny as I can be on a Sunday morning. This is service two for me, all right? I'm, I'm running out. I know that we have to dig through the scripture to grasp this, but I think what ails our world and what keeps us spiritually immature is not that we have too much scriptural awareness, but rather we have, we have lessened our scriptural awareness and consciousness to such a degree. We don't even know how to navigate this life because we don't know what the Bible says about anything. We will not be judged for our sins. However, our works will be judged. This is going to be a personal encounter one-on-one -on -one with the living Christ, where he will not judge our position in him, but certainly our performance for him. The question kind of is, what kind of son, what kind of daughter to the father have you been? Maybe I could simply say, what kind of testimony did we have? What was our work ethic for the Lord Jesus Christ? How did we spend our money? How did we spend our time? How did we serve the church with our gifts and talents, which the Lord Jesus Christ died for? What kind of influence are we exerting now on earth? What are we doing? 
I think oftentimes, whenever a pastor says something along the lines of, well, the Bible teaches that we should give as God has prospered us, the thought is, that guy has a building to build. That guy's worried about paying his bills. That's an empire builder. Here's the fact. We should do the right thing because God expects it, and we should do the right thing because we will answer to God for it. Who cares what I think? So many ministries or operations are built around a persona or trying to charge people to buy into the vision rather than to just buy into what the scripture already tells us. I don't have to build an empire. I have to feed the flock of God with the word of God. And I have to communicate to you that what you are doing here and now matters there and then. And too many people live ignorant of that fact and they will answer to God Not for their sins that's been covered by the blood of Christ, but for what they have done for Christ as one of his children on this earth. And too many of us are squandering our existence. I believe that it'll be a place of great weeping when we stand there. You say, now hold on a second. He shall wipe away every tear. I think it'll be a place of great sorrow standing before the judgment seat of Christ. I think it'll be a place of loss of reward that we could have otherwise had. I think it'll be a place where we are confronted with what we missed. And then to go against the Baptist stream and not just be negative, I think also it'll be a place of great joy and relief. I think it will be a place where people will recognize that all that they expended in this life was noticed by God and is now being rewarded by God. I think it'll be a place of grace and deepest love because there's no deeper love than when you offend someone and they love you still and Jesus will love us still. All of us, that's you. Every one of us, that's me. You will have a very real moment where you will answer to Christ for what you are doing and it's called the judgment seat. The judgment seat of Christ. What in the world is that going to be like? Standing at the Bema seat, what's it like? The Bible gives us verbal images. The Bible helps us to visually understand or to deepen our comprehension of the judgment seat of Christ. And it it helps us by giving us some idea. Here's what it's like. One of the things that it's like is it is like a refiner's fire. Now, just listen in to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Now, if any man build upon This foundation, gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble. He's just, here's some materials that you can build with. Every man's work shall be made manifest. Made manifest just means one day, all of your works are going to be made known and shown out. It is going to be made manifest. For the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire. And the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. If any man's work abide which he hath built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss. Get this, this is an important phrase, but he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. You say, dude, you've been to 16 different books and you are confusing me to no end. The Bema seat is not to judge your sin, but to judge your works as a child of God. And one of the images that we have is the writers in Scripture say it's like a refiner's fire. And every time that we read about fire in in connection to God, it is concerning His holiness. So at a point, you and I will stand before Christ and the holiness of God, like the daytime sun, is going to shine through us and it is going to reveal 
our works. And our works are either gold, silver, and precious stones, or they are wood, hay, and stubble. And what it communicates is everybody's doing something. Everybody's building something. They're just using different materials with which to build it, and we will all answer for what we have built. And this fire will pass through. That's the visual imagery. And everything that's wood, hay, and stubble is going to be burnt up, and there will be nothing there but the foundation. But others, when the fire passes through, it will burn off all the wood, hay, and stubble. But what will be left is gold, silver, and precious stones. And for that which is left, they will receive a reward. And I think it's very simple to practically apply. There are going to be some who stand before Christ and have absolutely nothing left. Nothing of any value save their salvation intact. And that's an important note. But there are people who are literally squandering this existence. There are individuals who are building material lives of wood, hay, and stubble. And it may be impressive in this temporal world, but when it is compared to eternity and the things of value, which truly are those things which matter to Christ, there is nothing of value there and they will have nothing but their salvation intact. It's not only like a refiner's fire. It reveals motives. J. Vernon McGee, who was an old preacher, said this, most of the things that we worry about won't matter in three weeks, let alone three months or three years. We focus on the trivial and forget to pursue the eternal, but 10,000 times, 10,000 years from now, you'll still be glad you invested your life for Jesus Christ. And your motives matter. In 1 Corinthians, yet again, the Apostle Paul, responding to a troubled group of believers in Corinth, writes this to them in 1 Corinthians 4, 5. Therefore, judge nothing before the time until the Lord come, who both will bring to light the hidden things of darkness and will make manifest the counsels of the hearts. Then shall every man have praise of God. The counsels of the hearts. He's going to reveal the motives behind what we're doing. And there are inescapably, a whole lot of fakes for the Lord Jesus Christ. There are a lot of people who are very skilled at maintaining a facade. There are a lot of people who have never negotiated life without a mask on. They are genuine Hippocrates. They are genuine hypocrites. Every situation, they just put on a different mask And they perform on whatever stage they create, depending on the crowd they find themselves in. And the Bible says that may be well and good for here and now, but there is going to come a moment where all of your disguises are stripped away and the the very motive, the very counsel of your heart is going to be revealed. That's a terrifying reality. I don't mean to shake you to the core nor to scare you, but I mean to say to you, listen, this isn't going to have anything to do with how much money you've made. This isn't going to have anything to do with your education or your position. In fact, many people who are completely unknown, a whole lot of people perhaps hardly even known to fellow believers are going to receive reward after reward after reward from the Lord's hands because their their works were purely motivated for his glory. 
which indicates to me that down through human history, there are going to be people who have done things for the glory of God, constrained by the love of Christ, going after the lost in this world, who are going to receive reward after reward, and we're not even going to know where they came from or who they were. There are going to be people from inland China who have dealt with grievous persecution for the cause of Jesus Christ who are going to receive rewards. We're going to hear names of the individuals who were scattered under Roman persecution, who Peter is writing to in 1 Peter, who lost everything, homes and families, and still proclaimed the name of Jesus Christ and were faithful to the end. We can pick up books and we can read stories of martyrs who literally gave their lives for the cause of Christ, countless numbers of which We don't even know about. And they will receive reward after reward after reward. And those whom we perceive to be the most forward thinking and and farthest advanced in the cause of Christ are going to stand there with only their salvation intact. Because motives are going to be real. It's not about where you come from. It's not about how big the crowd was. He knows about our hearts. I love what Charles Spurgeon wrote on this. He said, Don't hold back because you can't preach in St. Paul's Cathedral. Be content to talk to one or two. You may cook in small pots as well as big ones. Little pigeons can carry great messages. Even a little dog can bark at a thief and wake up the master and save the house. Do you realize that people that you and I hardly ever think of are going to receive rewards and then pause for just a second and think of us? who have the privilege of serving the Lord Jesus Christ in the freest nation in the world, with technology at our disposal, meeting together to worship in a space like this, and we all know to whom much is given, much is required. And may I communicate to you, we're all part of the much has been given to crowd, which means much is required of us, and we are terribly terribly petulant and selfish. That's not a rebuke in a message. That's a reality concerning my own heart's condition. Not only is it a refiner's fire where our motives will be revealed, but it's a reward ceremony. That's what the Bema was. It was also the place where victorious athletes would stand to receive their crown. Victorious athletes, I'm sure few of us understand that. What that means is somebody won an athletic contest because of their physical prowess, and they received a reward for it. Anyone want to, are you a victorious athlete? We have, well, really, we did have a guy, right, a couple, all right, put your hands down, I don't want to hear it. I'm not a winner. It's the moment of their life. The Apostle Paul was writing to Timothy, and he said this to him, I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but unto all them also that love is appearing. Paul, all the other Romans, all these in the city of Corinth, they would have understood what it was to receive that crown. I'm going to be there one day. That's what Paul is saying. I'm going to be standing before the Lord. I'm going to be there for my reward ceremony. And his evaluation is going to be perfect. It won't be wrongly motivated. He's not going to miss something important. And Romans 14 already told us what our response is going to be. We're simply going to call him Lord, and we're all going to hit our knees. There's not going to be any any other different reaction than that. 
our rewards. Now, I think it's an interesting thing. That when the Bible speaks of the crowns that we will receive in heaven, it does not ever use the word diadem, which is the crown of royalty. It always uses that word stephanos, which is the laurel, the crown that you would receive for being an athlete for training, for striving for the mastery. All of this is being used. And the judge is going to judge our actions and he's going to judge our motives and he is going to reward us accordingly. And by the way, he's also going to make everything right. You ever sat somewhere and you just knew in your heart that person's a fake? You just knew in your heart that that person did you wrong and you want so desperately to have vindication and you want your emotional condition to be validated and you want everybody to know all along you were right, do you realize that at the Bema Seat, Christ will set everything right as he reveals all that we did not do or did do? And and we'll all stand there. And and I'm not going to give one rip what you think of me in that moment. I'm going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ and I'm not going to think, oh... We built the second building. I should have picked a different color for the walls. I should have preached shorter. I, I know in that moment, I'm going to be like, I should have preached longer and longer and longer. I'm not going to care what you think. You're not going to care what I think. I might try to argue with the Lord and say, Jesus, do you know what it was like to pastor Graceway? And then I'm naming a few names. I'm going to be like, don't forget, so-and-so was there. I do believe there may be a moment where the Lord just like, mm-hmm, well... He, well, you, he has a point. I, another laurel for this one. Bring it up. We're not going to have any reason to debate. All we're going to do is hit our knees and call him Lord. And at that point, we don't get a do-over, man. At that point, we can't hit the rewind button. What that is, is it's a machine that you hit a button on and something rewinds. You don't get, to hit, you don't get a do-over. You don't get another crack. God, if you just give me... If you give me 10 more days, I'll have Ebenezer Scrooge. If I can just wake up from this dream and set things right, you give me one more crack. At that moment, your face is going to be in the ground. You're going to be on your knees, and your works will either be completely burnt up with your salvation intact, or you're going to have a few meager things to offer back to the Lord Jesus Christ. But I'm telling you now, we don't care enough about then. It is The rewards that will matter, I think it maybe is a crass way to say it, but I'm sure the question exists out there. If I'm going to live this life of separation, if I'm going to strive for the mastery, what's in it for me? I think it's hard to imagine, but the Bible teaches us that as Christians, we join in on the inheritance of the Son of God. All of the riches of glory are ours. And the Bible does clearly list for us some crowns that will be rewarded in heaven. Now, I want to be careful from the onset. I don't think this is a complete listing of all of the rewards that will be available, but this is what the Scripture does give us. The Bible tells us that there is a victor's crown. Now, Paul was talking about that with Timothy, and he says this in 1 Corinthians 9. Every man that striveth for the mastery is temperate in all things. Everybody who's in an athletic contest knows what it is to try to keep their physical body in subjection. They know what it is to be moderate. They know how to diet. They know how to exercise. They know how to push themselves. They know how to train because they're desperately trying to get that corruptible crown, that that wreath, that laurel wreath that communicates to them victory, which is where resting on your laurels comes from. Side note, I'm a giver of free knowledge. He says, now, if they're going to be motivated like that for that laurel wreath, 
You and I who are believers, he goes on, they do it to obtain a corruptible, but we an incorruptible. So Paul says, I run. Not like an uncertain, directionless individual. I fight, not as somebody who's shadow boxing merely in the air, but I keep under my body and bring it into subjection. I literally beat my own body up. I train myself, spiritually speaking, lest that by any means when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. Preacher said this, whenever a man strives at any kind of athletic contest, he prepares for it. He goes through rigorous training. They're getting ready for the contest. They're trying to win the crown. Now, Paul says that ought to be the way the Christian is. He ought to be trying and working and training and discipling himself, disciplining himself in order to win the victor's crown. This is something that we can obtain. He also speaks to us the scripture of the crown of rejoicing. Given to those who bring others to saving grace, the knowledge of Jesus Christ. In 1 Thessalonians 2, we read this. For what is our hope? What is our joy? What is our crown of rejoicing? Ah, it's you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ that is coming. The crown of rejoicing. We read about the crown of righteousness. To be given to those who have a longing for the return of Jesus Christ. Looking for the return of Jesus Christ and living in light of its reality. We read that in 2 Timothy 4.8. Henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but unto all them also that love is appearing. There's the crown of life. There are those who have endured trial. There are those who have endured persecution, even to the point of martyrdom. James writes this, Blessed is the man that endureth temptation. Persecution, trial. For when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord hath promised to them that love him. In Revelation chapter 2, and this requires a little backstory that I won't take the time for. Revelation 2.10, we read, Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison, that ye may be tried, and ye shall have tribulation ten days. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. I don't want to get into the context of that, but to the clear declaration of the crown of life. He also speaks of the crown of glory. I think it's awarded to faithful shepherds, pastors, elders, ministry, Christian leaders, First Peter 5. The elders which are among you, I exhort. Peter writes, who am also an elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ and also a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed. Now he's exhorting elders and he says, feed the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight thereof, not by constraint, but willingly, not for filthy lucre, but of a ready mind, neither as being lords over God's heritage, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd shall appear, ye shall receive a crown of glory that fadeth not away. Now I reiterate, these are not by any means the only rewards, but this is what the scripture gives us insight to as our primary motivation. And I know how we think. I'm telling you, pastor, all I want is to get into heaven. But all I can tell you is the foundation of scripture says you will care. You say, but I know already I've got my mansion in heaven and I've kind of pictured it. I'm not even sure that's theologically sound to sing the song, I've got a mansion just over the hilltop. What hilltop? He said, in my father's house are many mansions, and I go to prepare a place for you. If it were not so, I would have told you. He didn't say, hey, by the way, you get a mansion and just picture it however you want, because that's what heaven is like for you. 
I will tell you, you will care. Have you ever been involved in a dumb raffle? Anyone? A dumb raffle. You get raffle tickets. I mean, we could have a tumbler with the Graceway logo on it, and we could have a raffle at the beginning of the church service, and you get a ticket, and at some point in the service, we say, okay, we're going to award the tumbler to the raffle winner. You're in conversation. You're like, wait, wait, wait. I want to hear this. And we go down the numbers like, yes, yes, yes. Oh, I'm out. I didn't win the dumb tumbler with the Graceway logo on it. We care about that stuff, and somehow we've convinced ourselves that we are going to stand before the Son of God who shed his sinless blood on our behalf, instilled upon us with the Holy Spirit, spiritual gifts, prospered us in this life, put us in this place, equipped us for success, and we think we're going to stand there and go, you know, I don't really care. I just want in. You are going to care. If you care about a raffle over a tumbler or a cushion with the school name on it, you are going to care when it's the crown of rejoicing or the victor's crown. And I'm saying it as straight as I possibly can. There are a lot of us in this room this morning that if we're honest, have used a lot of wood, hay, and stubble on the foundation of our salvation to build our lives. And we think we're making our way and we have set ourselves on the easiest possible path not realizing that all of this life is merely a staging exercise for all of eternity. Why do we grip so tightly and care so greatly about that which will dissipate when the Lord Jesus returns? So I don't like this thought, man, because you're guilting me into action. I'm not guilting you into action. I'm just communicating to you the truth of Scripture. Jesus is speaking in Revelation chapter 22. This is the end. And by the way, Revelation 22 is the end of the Bible. And Jesus is talking, and here's what Jesus says in Revelation 22, 12. And behold, I come quickly. And Jesus doesn't say, and I want to guilt you with this. Jesus doesn't say, I want to, I want to quit Pastor Edwards to beat you over the head with this. He says this from him. And my reward is with me to give every man According as his work shall be. One of the last things that we read in Scripture is Jesus saying to us, By the way, I'm coming soon. And when I'm coming, I'm bringing my rewards with me. And every man's work is going to be made manifest, and I will reward him. That's how Jesus motivates us. If you lack spiritual motivation, I'm not drumming up church attendance. I'm not saying, if you're not here next week, you're not getting a crown. Now, that may be, but we can't know for sure. I'm not saying to you, if you don't give to... I'm not saying anything. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, this is not human pressure. This is the Bible. And as a believer who's navigating a challenging world, I'm saying to you, eternal priorities better start taking center stage for every one of us because this very real moment in time is coming. Thanks for listening this week to the Graceway Baptist Church podcast. For more information about our church and our ministries, head on over to our website at gracewaycharlotte.org. We are a church located in South Charlotte. We are growing and our ministries are doing big things for Christ. If you're looking for a way to get plugged into what we're doing, 
Email us at info at gracewaycharlotte.org. Also, stay in the loop with everything happening by following us on Facebook and Instagram. Our handle is Graceway Charlotte. Thanks again for listening to the Graceway Charlotte podcast. We'll see you next week.